Wonderful opportunity before us this morning. We've been blessed by so many wonderful sermons that have brought us through this book verse by verse. <clears throat> and we're now actually coming to the end of a major section, and that's the section that has, has flowed through Paul uh, teaching and reminiscing with the Thessalonians, as I'll talk about in a minute. And and after this, we're going to go into chapter 4, where Paul begins his instruction, as he most often does in his letters with a few chapters of doctrine, then following that with duty or practice or commands, or however you want to look at it here, I think it's mostly exhortation and instructions. But if you would, in First Thessalonians, turn to chapter 3, and our passage is actually going to be verses 6 to 13, but I want to begin reading at chapter 3, verse 1. Listen closely to the first five verses, because that'll be a review of Timothy being sent to visit them in his visit there, and, and what Paul was like while he was gone. So, First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when, we, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now our passage here, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what kind of thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may the, our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray quickly. Father, as we go to your word, open our hearts, edify us, teach us, but only, only for the purpose is that through us, the word may live, the word may go forth and sound forth as it did with the Thessalonians, that our lives may show the faith and the love that we're going to see that they had, that, that we, being equipped, may do the work of service, do the work of ministry, do the work of evangelism, and do your, your work, Lord Jesus, to grow this church in, in all those ways. And we ask now that we listen carefully, that that we think as we listen to not only learn, but how to apply, how to take this into our lives this week and as we go forward. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've been doing the challenge that was put forth to read the book 
by Jan, it's going to pay off greatly today. Uh, that's because at the end of this section here, what happens is we're going to be pulling from the beginning of the book, pulling forward uh, from everything that Paul's been writing. And you're going to see that there. There's lots of places we're going to be referring back. So I ask you to keep your Bibles open. And because we have eight verses to go through, I'm going to stay very close to the text. We're going to go phrase by phrase. You're going to hear me break it up and structure it, but really, it's just to follow the text. Paul, of course, we know is very logical, and he's very, usually very easy to follow. And this letter, too, it's a fascinating letter. And what's fascinating about it is there's a whole context in the book of Acts that, that we know from Paul's second uh, missionary journey. We know the context. We see his visit here and this letter then fills in and gives us so much more depth to, for what happened in this city, in this body here. As Paul is going to spend a lot of time here reviewing, reminding, reminiscing uh, of his visit there and then what it's been like since he's been gone. And when you read through this book, it's very challenging. I think I, I looked at the outlines from at least 10 different commentaries and many authors like to flow through this following the historical thread, following the flow of how Paul was there, how he was abruptly left, what it's been like since Timothy's visit. He flows through the letter historically, all right? But also many authors like to look at this, this book and flow through it from a Paul pastoral view. And we're going to see that today and, and flow through this book in terms of Paul's pastoral care. So you can look at this book and you can see Paul from, from the time he visited there, their salvation and equipping and, and subsequent parts there. And then third, there's a, there's a flow that you can do through this book just looking at the church, just looking at the Thessalonians and seeing how they went from being unsaved uh, to becoming Christians and seeing how they grew, how their faith went forth and, and, and flow through the letter from that perspective. But thinking first of that historical flow, we're in Paul's second missionary journey. And if you remember, and we've, we've been through this with the other sermons, uh, Paul wanted, after his first journey, he wanted to revisit the cities of his first journey. He went to Barnabas. This journey started out with him and Barnabas parting ways, disagreeing, and there being turmoil between the two of them. Then he starts flowing through Asia Minor. He visits churches and immediately starts running into a redirection, I'll call it, by the Holy Spirit. He's running into opposition. And remember, wherever Paul goes, he's going into the synagogues. And he's preaching in the synagogue. So he's hitting immediate resistance from the Jews that are there. He's also being followed in many places by Jews from Jerusalem. We know them as the Judaizers who are coming along and saying, if you want to be saved, you know, you've got, you've got to do it the Old Testament way. You've got to become a Jew. You've got to do circumcision. You've got to follow the law. So you've got intermixed in all his journeys lots of distress, affliction, in each of the places he goes. As he goes along the way, he picks up Timothy, this young convert. And so Timothy here is a big part of this book. He gets to the point where finally, as Jan was reviewing, and it's 
he gets this point where the Holy Spirit, through a vision, the Macedonian vision, uh, says, you're, you're not going to be going to Asia, but I want you to go over to Macedonia. I want you to take the gospel into Europe. And that's when he crosses through. We see him in Philippi, and of course, we, we know the story there, the jail, and, 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 and all the, the turmoil and tribulation he had there. He gets to Thessalonica, and we see the story there from the book of Acts, and the story of Jason, and uh, the persecution there, and he needed to flee, and we'll refer to that a lot today. And then he goes down to Athens, he goes across, he, farther down to Corinth, and, and he's actually in Corinth at the time that he writes this letter. So this is warfare. We don't understand it. We're blessed in this country, but this is warfare. This is spiritual war. This is a battlefield. There's just, and what we're going to hear today from Timothy is literally a battlefield report. Um, my wife and I really love to watch World War II stories. And throughout World War II, you know, the Americans had to constantly write battle reports of every encounter, had to keep track of everything. And I had a friend uh, when I worked in the corporate world, he buys all the books of all of the battlefield reports and loves to know the inside story directly written by those who fought in the battles. Well, that's what we're going to get today. We're going to get a battlefield report. When you think about this spiritual warfare, we see the references here. I don't think we understand how bad it is to actually have Satan fighting you. And that's exactly what was happening with Paul here. Satan fighting him and him concerned that when he left that Satan would then attack this young... Actually, these are new recruits. This is a young company of soldiers, a new set of recruits uh, that haven't even finished boot camp. And he's only there for three weeks, some even estimate maybe as much as three months. He's their first pastor. He founds the church. He's in the middle of a spiritual war. The Jews are against him. Satan is against him. And he abruptly has to leave this, this young set of new recruits on the battlefield in Thessalonica there. Um, probably didn't finish boot camp. I don't think we could get through fundamentals of faith in three weeks, could we, Max? Okay, they probably, you think about that. These were young recruits, Jews and Gentiles too, which didn't get along, and they were under attack. And that's why I named this Embedded with Paul, because uh, a very common thing is to embed journalists, put journalists in with the fighting troops to watch and see and record and report what is happening during the battles. Well, the view we have from this letter and putting it on top of the book of Acts is we are embedded with Paul, and we get to see firsthand what is happening here. And so as you, you take this book, I would encourage each of you, and we'll come back to this later, as you read and reread, read at Taking Jan's Challenge, and I challenge you to do this, read through thinking in terms of the historical flow, the spiritual warfare. Think through this book as you read through it in terms of Paul and his pastoral care and, and, and what he was going through. Read through it also in terms of the Thessalonians. When you think about Paul, if you're reading through in a, in a pastoral sense of Paul, uh, you know, churches have, and we have, and we're working on, you know, a position called senior pastor. Right? Uh, pastor teacher is a common title. I've even got a guy from seminary, he likes to call the pastor the pastor theologian. I don't know where that one comes from. But, you know, if you were to take this letter 
And if you were to take the lead pastor here and use that title for Paul, you know what you'd call him? You'd call him pastor parent. He would be the pastor parent, and we'll come back to that. See, and and don't think that in in chapter 2, verses 7 to 12 that Max taught us, that that's all that this letter teaches us about Paul as a parent to this young church. We're going to see it just flows, it bleeds out, it oozes out of him that he was a parent to this body of believers. So think of it too as you read this, the, the teaching, the care, even the modeling of Paul because it says, be imitators of me. And him wanting to go back, he wants to model his faith as well as teach them about their faith, okay? And of course, his love and his, his every aspect of his character, he wants to impart to them. When you consider this as spiritual warfare, when you consider this as a battlefield, you have to see Paul as a parent who has been violently separated from his young children. See Paul as a parent who has been violently separated from his young children. And read this book then knowing that and knowing how to imitate him as, of course, he did Christ. This is just an amazing book. But we're going to follow the historical flow today. The historical flow is the way the, written, the letter is written. We'll point out many of the pastoral points, many of the church points. But the best way, I'd lose you completely if I didn't follow the historical flow. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to see Timothy's visit. And that's going to be real quick. Then we're going to move on and we're going to see his report, very specific report. Then we're going to see his, Paul's reaction to that report. And lastly, we're going to see Paul's prayer that's based on that report. So look in verse 6, and this is, this is very quick because it builds on the first five verses. Verse 6 starts out here, the visit, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. That but gives us our contrast here, gives us a big shift. And I talk about a big shift from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 3, 13. Uh, there has been, there is mostly defense and explanation by Paul of his ministry. Okay? The things he wasn't, as we saw in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, the things he was, the parenting of 2, 7, 12, and, and defense, explanation. But now it's going to move primarily to this report. It's going to move from defense and explanation. It's going to move to joy. It's going to move to comfort. It's going to move to thanks. It's going to move to prayer. And my favorite line from this passage, now we really live. Because Paul says, we really live now that we've gotten this report. And this now here, this, uh, commentators love that. This. this is a just now. This is an immediate just now. In other words, Timothy has literally just right now walked in with this report and Paul immediately after hearing that report sits down and writes this letter right now, just now. That also shows us, talk about the heart of Paul, that's how much he cared. Chapter, one, chapter 3 verse 1, he couldn't endure it any longer. Verse 5, couldn't endure it any longer. Just now, Timothy returns. And it says that Timothy has come to us from you. As I said, Paul's in Corinth. Timothy returns. And 
just as a side note, and you'll have to do most of these on your own, he says he's come to us from you. If you look in just this verse alone, us, you, us, you, you, us, three times, three, three times, he says you and us. This is a very personal letter, very personal. He doesn't say, well, Timothy just returned from Thessalonica, and here's the, no, it's from you to us. But now let's look at the report. So Timothy's come, and look at verse 6. He's brought, come to us from you, and the, the report starts. And he has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. That's the report. <laughs> and it's a battlefield report, as I said. And it's an executive summary. It's in the briefest of bullet forms. Well, why is that so? Well... What is 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians repeats and, and tells us, contains so many of the updates. It, 1 Thessalonians is based on this report. So even though there's more historical parts in here that didn't need the report, a lot of what's in this letter is from the report of Timothy. And the responses then are also in this letter. So this part right here, verse 6, Paul just needs to give us the, as I got, the executive summary. The report title, you can call it Good News, because that's exactly what it is. This is good news from the Thessalonian front, if we were sticking with the battlefield picture here. But the points are real straightforward. There's four of them. It's about the good news of your faith, the good news of your love. It talks about the, so their spiritual health. And then it moves, the second part, it talks about their relationship help with Paul. It's about that you're always thinking kindly about us. That's the third point. And the fourth point is, you long to see us too. So let's walk through. Good news, the title. Good news. This is the same word we use for gospel. We use for evangelism. Uh, very rare to use it in this form, only twice uh, every other time. It is used just for that, the gospel, the gospel of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is so excited, he's so encouraged, he's so comforted, he's so pleased by this report that he uses this special word to say, this is great news. Certainly not on par with the gospel. In, in the Roman culture, Good news was a term they used. They'd send messengers from town to town. The good news, you know, that the emperor just got married again or something. The good news that the emperor just had another baby. The good news that. And that's how they passed the news around at that time. And that's where this word was used in the outside culture. Here, this is my kind of good news, Paul says. <clears throat> Timothy's come with a great report. Now, also remember the context. You know, we've all heard the analogy that how do you show off a diamond? You take the diamond, you put it against a black backdrop because that gives it the greatest contrast. Well, that's what we have here in verse 7, and we're going to get to it, is that Paul's certain stanches right now are those of distress and affliction. So that's the contrast to this report. Look at the report good news of your faith and love. Let's start with the good news of your faith. Now, what I'm going to do, we're going to cover faith and love in more detail here, so then when we get to the prayer, we can move through it quicker. But the first part here is let's talk about the good news of your faith. Of course, brief, we've got two chapters flowing up to now of, of many of the things that are in this report about how strong their faith is built on top of what Paul saw when he was there. 
Well, faith also continues in chapters 4 and 5 that are going to follow us, but there it's in the exhortation. There it's where they need to grow. It's where they, where they need to, to get more faith. Faith, then, is a, a major theme in this book. And this is where I want you to turn back, and, and we'll start uh, in chapter 2. We won't look at verse 213, but faith first begins with their saving faith. Remember, they received the word of God for what it was. They were saved by faith. Faith alone, grace alone. But second, I want you to look in, in chapter 1, verse 2. They had a working faith. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. So their faith was working from the very beginning. Verse 8 of chapter 1, your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. So their faith went out from their church. It was known. It was seen. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. It doesn't say faith here, but their faith was tested. You also endured the same sufferings as the other churches did, that was said earlier in the verse, at the hands of your own countrymen. Now go to chapter 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Timothy's trip that he's just returning from was to continue to grow their faith. In verse 5, this is when Paul says, I can endure it no longer. He says, I, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted us, Satan, and our labor would be in, faith, in vain. Excuse me. So now in verse 6, you can see how many times he's talked about faith. Their faith from saving faith has grown and has even gone forth. And in verse 7, looking forward a little bit, the concern over their faith turns to comfort. Verse 7, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. But, 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 even though he's comforted, look at verse 10. As night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, what is those areas? Well, we're going to see many of them in chapters 4 to 6. We're going to see some of them referred to in 2 Thessalonians. But they just needed growing, as we'll talk about. One author, Gordon Fee, said the best way to think about faith, beyond that saving faith that, that first was their salvation, is the word faithfulness. I like that. This is really talking about their faith in the sense of faithfulness. The way they live out their, that faith in very practical, everyday circumstances is thus their faithfulness, says Gordon Fee. So I use that. I'll speak much of their faith as their faithfulness, taking what they know, trusting the Lord, and living that out. When you look back here, and I talked about how the tempter w would get to them, that was Paul's concern. Why was he concerned that Satan would get to this young group? Think about that. Why was he concerned? Well, his goal, once saved, and he certainly can't destroy your salvation, Satan's goal in anybody, even in ours, is to render our faith null, to make us useless, useless in the Lord's work. No fruit, no works of faith, no evangelism, no building up of the body. See, if Satan gets in, the way for Satan to crush us is just to make us useless. That was Paul's 
concern for them, that they'd be faithless. And if you're faithless, you are, what, fleshly. And remember, too, in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. That verse is so important that the Holy Spirit repeated it three times in the New Testament. We live by faith, okay? Uh, Paul even says that they became imitators of the Lord. They became imitators of him who was an imitator of the Lord. Faith is knowing, knowing what God requires of us and living it out. Faith has to be living, right? Faith without works is dead faith. They had a living faith, and that's what the report is saying here, is I have heard a great report that your faith is alive. You're growing. You're evangelizing. You're living out your faith. Satan hasn't come in and, and made you useless. So first, the, the, the good news of their faithfulness And then Paul turns to their love, the good news of your love. Well, go back to chapter 1, verse 3 again, and when Paul was was talking about remembering them, in, in addition to their work of faith, he spoke of their labor of love. Their love was also showing forth from the very beginning of this church. When he gets to chapter 4, verse 9, so now turn a couple pages the other direction, now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel excel still more. Their love was known, their love was strong, especially for a young church, but in chapter 4 we're going to see Paul is going to push them to love even more. And he's going to pray for it at the end of our chapter here, too, that they grow in love. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. Abound for love in the church and outside the church, just as we also do for you. Those are just the references most of the references to love directly. When you read this book and you see Paul's heart, when you see the Thessalonian church's response, this church oozes, this book oozes, bleeds, just flows with love. Sacrificial love for each other, love through obedience for their Lord and Savior. All right, so that straightforward, faith and love. Uh, to the Galatians, Paul tied those together and he says, for Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. I love this phrase, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. But what matters? Faith working through love. Faith working through love. One author says their faith in God found active expression in their love for others. Many of the, most of the authors, when they get to the end of this section, they look at faith and love and they put them together. They say this, this gives us a complete summary of their spiritual maturity growing, growing ahead of their age as Christians, ahead of their age as a church. And that's why, as John has called it, this is a dream church. Many call it a model church, an ideal church, but it is still a growing church. It is not a perfect church. But already in their infancy, they're known for their faith and their love. So let's look at the next part of the report, the relationship with Paul. 
So we first have to report on their spiritual health. Now we're going to look at the health of their relationship with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Now remember that again. Paul, think of Paul as the pastor parent. Think of Paul as a parent to this young church. Look at chapter one, verse uh, chapter two, verse seven. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. And then down in verse 11, and just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And then down in verse 19 of chapter 2, for who is our hope, our joy, our crown, our exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This is Paul the parent. This is, this is the love that a parent shows for their children. And remember, too, that's against the backdrop of Paul having to abruptly leave them in their infancy. Maybe they're three weeks, maybe three months, just beginning to impart his faith to them. And he had to abruptly leave because of the oppression of the Jews. So this letter shows us through the responses, through direct verses, that Paul is deeply concerned about how they feel about him. He really wants to know. Okay? He's the parent. He really wants to know if they still love him, if they want to see him. And certainly if Satan got to them, as we know through the Judaizers and the Jews, they made part of their attack to attack Paul personally. So not only could they be upset with him for leaving abruptly and leaving them as a, you know, this, their first pastor, right? Think about you, if your first pastor leaves you after three weeks. That's not the best circumstances. And they're, they're concerned, and then these oppressors come in, and they were also known for attacking Paul to try to discredit him. So he is concerned. And being like a parent, he is deeply concerned. He's deeply interested because he is deeply invested in them as his people, and he wants to know how they feel towards him. He, he, he wants them to know that how he continues to feel towards them in the other direction. So the relationship status is what? Look there back at verse 6. You always think kindly of us. Always. They never lost their love. Never. They never doubted Paul. They, they kept this love for him. Always. Continual. Never faded. They think kindly. That, that says kind memories. Affections. Right? They had a kindness and affection towards Paul that they never left. And remember too... Timothy has just been there for quite a while. This wasn't like Timothy just walked through, spent the day there, and heard, oh, yeah, we're still fine with Paul. No, he got to be around them. He got to see and to know that they really did think kindly of, of Paul, of Silvanus, and Timothy, the, the whole team. Uh, and excuse me if I keep referring to just Paul. It's for brevity and ease, ease of moving forward. But, but you continue to think kindly of us. But then the last part of the report says, you're longing to see us, too. So not only did they think kindly, but add to that these very real feelings that they were craving. This word longing is craving. It's continual. It's just this strong, intense longing. 
It's the same word Peter used in 1 Peter 2 where it says we're to have this longing, this craving for the pure milk of the word of God, for the, we're to have a longing for the Bible just like a newborn baby craves milk. I mean, that's a craving we all know. That is the longing that they have to see Paul just as he and the team has to see them. And remember too, this isn't the first reference. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 17. But brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Paul's been longing to see them from the moment he got pulled away. And even in chapter 3, verse 10, back to our passage, as part of his prayer, he says, we day and night keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. So another theme in this book is this mutual longing between them to see Paul, Paul to see them, this mutual love that they still think kindly of Paul and his team, and Paul and his team, of course, greatly love the Thessalonians. So that's the good news report. It's real short, it's real brief, because then we've seen through all the teaching, we've learned about their faith, we've learned about their love, and as we just referred to, we've seen all these passages about the, the mutual longing, the mutual kindness between them. Well, let's take a look then at Paul's reaction to this report. This is verses 7 to 9, and I just gave this one simple title, Now We Really Live. Verse 7, for this reason, based on this report, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God in, for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Brethren, very personal term again, very close relationship term. 18 times he uses it here in this book. That's how close he is with them. And then he says, in all our distress and affliction. He's setting the context for which this report came. This is comfort compared to distress and affliction. Uh, of all the words I've ever studied in Scripture, these are the closest synonyms. When I was looking them up in context, I kept going, no, wait a second, which word am I looking at? Because they kept saying they meant the same thing. They are very, very close synonyms. External pressure, these are difficult circumstances that come on one with compelling force, distress, trouble, tribulation, affliction, even disasters. One author translated calamities, like an earthquake. Uh, what was his distress? Well, his distress was his concern for them. He was abruptly pulled away. He didn't know if Satan had gotten to him. He knew their faith wasn't complete. That was his distress. Affliction? Well, Paul has affliction everywhere. He's now in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verse 6, it says, The Jews resisted and blasphemed. Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He had a hard time in Corinth. Fortunately, the Lord Jesus stepped in and said, keep speaking, don't go. I've got you. And he was there another 18 months. But he's under current affliction. Wherever he goes, he's under distress. Remember 2 Corinthians what, 11, 28? He has, on top of all of the afflictions he suffers, he has daily concern for all the churches. 
That's part of his distress. So he's saying here, in our current situation of distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. We were encouraged. We were reassured, okay? And it's your faith that has comforted us. Your faith has comforted us. Your faith is good. You endured. Satan, even if he did attack, Satan didn't prevail. You have endured. We're comforted. We're reassured. We're encouraged. One author says the the good news that your faith holds firm and that we have been reassured. And so he follows that. We're comforted, this great encouragement, reassured. And he even adds that. Look at verse 8. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Puts another now in there. It's not quite as immediate, but it is saying right now. We've heard this report. Right now, we really live. And I know really live is going to be my favorite verse here for a few months. But it's not really in the text. The verse really says, for now we live. Uh, Most commentators, uh, I think entirely all of them, they, they like this translation of New American Standard using really live which if you've got an ESV or a New King James, another English translation, you're not going to have it there. But they like it because it shows the extreme contrast between what he's suffering, what he was concerned about, and what he's hearing in this report. And it's also continual. This is not a temporary emotion. This is something that's going to remain with him. So I think really live fits very well. But back to this pastoral sense. I want you to listen to this passage, uh, this paragraph by John Stott. He's a commentator author. He said, what is this extravagant language? Question. I have sometimes asked myself, what is this loving and longing, this intolerable suspense when there was no news and this overwhelming joy when the news was good? This affection, care, and fervent prayer, this sense of intimate solidarity with them. What is this? So his life was wrapped up in their lives and theirs in his. What is all of this? How do you explain all of these things he's asking? My answer is that this is the language of parents who are separated from their children, who miss them dreadfully, and are profoundly anxious when they have no recent news of them. Pastoral love is parental love. Excuse me. Pastoral love is parental love. That is its quality. Couldn't have said it any better. So, he really lives now. And then he says, if you stand firm in the Lord. Well, real quick, the if means since, but it's got a condition to it. It says, since you stand firm, we're really living, but you need to continue to stand firm. It has that sense to it. Right, since you're standing firm, and if you continue to stand firm, is what it's saying here. Interesting. You want to stick with our spiritual warfare motif? You want to think of this as a battlefield? Well, stand firm is a a military term to not retreat in battle. Hold your ground is what it means. He's telling them to stand firm. He does it again a couple times in 2 Thessalonians. Where Where is stand firm best defined? Well, the book of Ephesians. book of Ephesians... And we know we heard this in summer camp. Ephesians 4, chapter 1 to 3, walk in a manner worthy five times. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Walk in love. Walk in light. 
walk in wisdom, walk, 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 this whole book. And then Paul gets to spiritual warfare at the end of the book in chapter 6, verse 11, stand firm two times. We're to walk in our Christian life when it comes to spiritual warfare. If we are walking, if we are living as we should in our, in our Christian lives, the warfare comes to us. The persecution comes to us. And that's why we're commanded when it comes, we are commanded to stand firm. Put on the full armor of God. What's part of the full armor of God? Faith and love. And we're going to see that again in this book. So this is war. This is a battlefield report. Paul's really encouraged. He's encouraged that in this warfare they are standing firm. He can really live now. One of says, I can breathe again. Yeah, he can breathe again. He's excited and he's encouraged. His troops at Thessalonica, they're new, they're green. They are standing firm. They're holding the line through their faithful living. And so then he bursts out and look at verse 9. Part of his reaction, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Well, this is continuing the report, but it's beginning a transition. Our next thing we're going to see is the prayer, which we're going to move through much more quickly. It begins to transition to the prayer. And in verses 9 and 10 is one long question, one long sentence, and it's rhetorical. There's no answer expected. Okay? And it also, as you can see here, we're going to give to you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account. Uh, it's keeping with this theme of the return of Christ, a major theme in this book. Uh, they're living between the, the two eras where the next one to come is the return of Christ. And so keeping with that, he sets the scene of he's standing before God. He's in his presence, and in his presence he is begging God, asking, how can I ever repay you for all the joy that you have given us based on this report of the Thessalonians. Dr. Thomas noted, the faithful professor from our seminary who's passed now, he says, and if you knew Dr. Thomas for as old as he was, he says the change in Paul's mood was radical. <laughs> it was radical. It went from distress and affliction to the, all the joy with which we rejoice. That thing to notice as he begins this prayer, it's completely selfless. He doesn't say, well, Lord, thank you for using us with the Thessalonians. He is giving all the credit for everything here with the Thessalonians to God and the Lord Jesus, our Lord. He, they're 100% responsible. So what thanks can we, can we render? Can we repay is the word here. Could we ever repay? And the answer is no, we can't ever repay. And it's continual. We will continually be thanking you, and we continually know that we can never repay. We can never give back. For all the joy with which we rejoice. Here's emphatic. Joy with which we rejoice. This is Christian joy. This is not this emotion of happy and excited. This is settled down knowing that God has worked in their lives, has protected them, that they have stood firm, and we have that deep sense of joy. They're spiritually excited. And it's before our God on your account. It's for what you have done through the Lord working through you and the joy that's been brought to us. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 19, he's already told them 
that they are his joy. So what we're seeing here is an enhanced, excited joy based on this report. Look at verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. He already told him back chapter 2, verse 19, I am looking forward to the end of time when we stand before our Lord and we tell the Lord and we see that you have been our joy. We're looking forward to that time because of you. You know what Peter taught us? And by the way, 1 Peter is a perfect parallel to this book. Hey, you could take this book and you could take 1 Peter and you could lay them out and you could talk about faith and hope and love and you could talk about and they just they lay on top of each other perfectly. Well, 1 Peter in chapter 4 verse 13 when Peter is summarizing suffering and persecution, he says to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ Keep on rejoicing. That's like right now. If you're suffering for persecution because you're out sharing the gospel, you're being persecuted, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So those of you that have been out sharing, evangelizing, you've been out apologetics, defending the faith, and you've been persecuted, rejoice now. And when Christ returns, you will get to double rejoice. Rejoice with exaltation because of letting the Lord use you in his work. That's amazing. All right, well, that finishes Paul's reaction. We've seen Timothy's return. We've seen the report from Timothy in verse 6. In verses 7 to 9 here, we've seen this reaction. He's under distress and affliction, and they really live now. They're rendering this unthankable thanks Now let's turn to Paul's prayer. Well, this, as I said, was a transition in verses 9 and 10. So let me start with verse 9, and we'll pick up in verse 10. For what thanks, verse 9 says, can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. That's the first part of the prayer. And that's going to be about their faith. Verse 12 is the second part. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. That's the second part, for their love. And in verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And there he's praying for their established holiness for when our Lord returns. So let's look at their completed faith. Like I said, he continues this, this long set of verses here. He's continuing the thanks. He transitions over to this prayer. He's praying for God. Thanks, thanks, thanks. But then he begins praying for this return trip. And I want you to see, there's a, there's a lot of intensity. There's a lot of content here. Uh, let's take a look at the intensity first, and that's all in verse 10. And you can see there's the intensity just through the phrases, just three, three phrases here, okay? And one author said, Paul is fond of compound superlatives. Well, we all know we, we have lost the use of big words. Through the movies, through everything, there are no more big words, except maybe epic in cycling. That was an epic ride we took, Okay. Uh, actually, that one's gone too. Been used too many times. But look, for, look, just look at the intensity of Paul here. Day and night. 
We know that wasn't 24-7 because in chapter 2, he told us he was working night and day. Working both and praying. No, it just really means it's, it's, it's emphasis, it's extreme frequency, every opportunity, constantly. Paul says, I take every opportunity to pray for you. And then praying. It's not our usual word for praying. It's another word. It's not terribly rare, but it's another word. It means begging. How many times are our prayers begging? Well, they should be. We beg. He says, I am begging to supply an urgent need is what it means. I am begging God day and night, every opportunity that I get. I'm begging. Then he goes on and adds the third way to show the intensity, most earnestly. This is one of his super compound superlatives. It means super intensely. Put it all together as we day, night and day keep praying most earnestly. It means I am intensely begging God on, at every opportunity that I get. That's intense. Then you look at the content. It breaks up very nicely by the phrases there too. First, that we may see your face. Apple owes Paul royalties. FaceTime was not first with Paul, with Apple. It was first with Paul. That we may see your face. Actually, the Bible uses that a lot. You know, when God's not a respecter of persons, he doesn't accept your face. Very literal in that. But we want to see your face. He's repeating what he said in chapter 2, verse 17 and 19. He's pulling forward again. I want to visit you again. I want to visit you again. A second, and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Here's our faith again. Remember, Paul abruptly departed after a few weeks or months. He didn't finish that FOF class. Uh, Timothy's visit was short. We're not done helping you grow with your faith. Uh, Here's another one of those military words. The word complete here, we may complete what is lacking in your faith. It means supplying a military operation. Supplying. This is a war. We're supplying a military operation. And so we need to want to complete what is lacking. This doesn't say there are problems that he wants to address here. This is saying deficiency. We want your faith up here. It's here. We're not done. We'd use the word gaps. There's gaps from where your faith is now and where we want you to, to be. You think about Paul, he had a few weeks to months with them. He spent 18 months with the Corinthians. He spent three years with the Ephesians. It's actually going to be five years before he gets back to see the Thessalonians. And so what is lacking then in your faith, Paul's speaking in this whole letter, he speaks holistically about the whole person. This is all your faith. This is your spiritual maturity, your growth. He says, I want to help you grow. I want you to help in what you know, and I want you to help you to live it faithfully. Paul's ministry, we see it here, we see it everywhere. Teaching, modeling, teaching, living, imitate me. And that's what he wants to do is return so that he can do both of those. Uh, Best definition I know of completing the faith is back in Ephesians. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, 11 to 16, I don't have time to read it all, but he gave us pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
That's what we want to do as a church. That's what we want our leadership, the teaching, all of our ministries, teaching the children, ministering to each other. We want to grow in the unity of the faith to a mature man. It's a beautiful passage. If you're ever wondering where we need to go as a church, just read Ephesians 4, 12 to 16. It says it in three different ways. It's just beautiful. That's what Paul wants to do. He wants to return and complete this equipping work for the Thessalonians. And remember, too, from the Great Commission, the the Great Commission says, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them, but it also says teaching them. Okay, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Paul knows the Great Commission. He needs to return. He helped in their salvation. He now needs to return to, to finish this teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. All right, but then he moves on. And he, after t- talking about these, he, he moves now into the, the, what most consider the official prayer in verse 11 uh, of how to complete their faith. And he says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself, Jesus our Lord, direct our way to you. This part of the prayer, you can spend pages on this in the commentaries. It says our Father, it says the Lord Jesus, it says himself. It's pulling them together. He's, he's, He's focusing this part of the prayer on both God the Father and the Lord Jesus together. He says, I want you to direct our way. What's so interesting about this word, this context? Direct means straight, no obstacles in the path for us to get to you. Why is that? Well, last time he wanted to go, Satan hindered him. This is a prayer that God would straighten out the path, remove the obstacles so Satan wouldn't get in the way of them returning to the Thessalonians. Direct our way to you without interference. Send us straight there now. Don't let anybody get in our way. A very interesting prayer. Know your needs. Know what you need to pray for. Pray specifically. That's what Paul is doing here. So, this is the first part of the prayer, go, to go and complete their faith. But the second part of the prayer then, as I said in verse 12, is to increase their love. And he says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So now he takes the prayer and he shifts it from the God the Father and the Lord Jesus just to the Lord Jesus and he builds on the report of their, their love, and he says, I want it to increase. I want it to abound even more. I want it to increase. Abound here is overflow, spill over. It's, again, emphatic. When I talk about increase and abound, he says, I want it to increase so as it, it overflows, it spills over. And first of all, it's for one another. Ever study how the Jews and Gentiles got along? They didn't. Okay, they didn't. Um, and so the, the, here we have this, this new body of believers, Jews and Gentiles. He's praying for their love between them, for one another to grow. Remember, Christ got us the unity of the faith. We need to preserve it, as we learned at summer camp. We need to preserve it. And this is a persecuted church. They're being persecuted, certainly from the Jews on the outside. And he's saying, I want you to have a strong love necessary in the church so you hold each other up under that persecution. Unity, bond to withstand persecution. But I also need you to have a love for all people. Think about that, for all people. 
Certainly that means a, a love to evangelize. Our love can't stop here. Our kind of love can't stop because we know each other, we're comfortable with each other. Many of us have family and such. Our love can't stop here. That's too easy. Our love has to be for those outside who we know we're going to get resistance from. Our love has to be to go out there, right? When you pray for our building, I don't pray for the building and the walls. Pray, pray for our body being there, being equipped inside that building, but pray also that God puts us in a neighborhood where we can evangelize, a neighborhood where we can draw in from the families there, and we can share the love of Christ for them. It's easy to, as we could say in Western terms, circle the wagons, you know, and fellowship within the church and love one another. But remember the Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, when they're talking about who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What did Christ say? All people, as we're seeing here with Paul. Everyone is our neighbor. It is our tendency to narrow our definition of our neighbor. And Christ also taught in Luke 6, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Down to verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Romans 2.4. What leads men to salvation? The kindness of God. We need to love outsiders. And Paul says here, here's how we want you to love. Look at the rest of the verse. Just as we also do for you. In other words, we want you to love one another and love others just as we also abound in love for you. I don't need to go back and, and repeat what Max taught. Go see the sermon. He did a wonderful job. Look at how Paul loved them. He imparted their life to them, how he taught he was a parent, the nursing mother, gentle as a nursing mother. He was like a father. That's the model that they saw. That is pastoral love. So he is saying here, I don't want you to love. I want you to love just like you saw and learn from us on how to love. Don't need to say any more than that. And then he finishes with praise for established holiness. Look at verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's ending his prayer with another wonderful, great, huge theme in this book, the return of our Lord Jesus. We're going to hear much about it in the next couple chapters. I'm not going to spend time on it here. This is looking for... Uh, us at the whole, uh, for our holiness as we stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, after our glorification, after the rapture, we've been taken up, uh, everything we're going to see in the next couple chapters here. But this isn't a prayer that we say, ha ha, boy, you guys have grown, you're doing good, sit back, even keep what you're doing. He's going to do more is what he really wants. This is a prayer for action. It has immediacy to it. He's praying for their increasing faithfulness, and especially since it pulls forward from their love, he's praying for their increasing love as the basis for them to live more holy lives. And all of this increasing in faithfulness, love, holiness, all the way up to when the Lord returns our glorification. That's so that is what pulls all that forward, the purpose, increasing faithfulness, especially increasing love. 
Uh, Dr. Thomas says, an overflow of love is the only route to holy conduct in which no fault can be found. When you love, you're off yourself and you're on to others. That's what Dr. Thomas is saying. Establish your hearts is to strengthen. It's the same word. It's the reason why he sent Timothy back to return was to strengthen them. Without blame in holiness says, without blame says, you will be secure when you stand before our Lord at the Bema seat, at the, the judgment of Christ. You will stand secure that there will be nothing against you in holiness. You'll be stand secure that you are without sin. As I said, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's looking forward. We're going to cover that. But the Lord is praying. He's praying here for the Lord to work through these Thessalonians, grow them, and complete the good work that he began in them. Philippians 1, 6. Complete that work. Complete their holiness here before the Lord returns. But we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The question I gotta ask is look at this prayer. Did the Lord answer this prayer? And the answer is yes. Just turn one more page here and we'll finish. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse three. And this is why we read that. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse three. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. And therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches for your churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Just months later, this is what Paul is able to write to them. The prayer was answered. Did they sit back and just let God do all this work? No, <laughs> no, and we can't either. We need to continue equipment. We need to continue evangelizing. We need to keep getting out there, getting our faces out in this world so that we are a persecuted church. We are a church that loves each other, loves one another. And so I challenge you as, as you've been challenged, take this book. We've just finished this beautiful section, three chapters. Read it. Read through it. Get to know it historically. Understand spiritual warfare. Read through it and understand how persecution comes from those who live faithfully. Read through it. See the parent heart of Paul. See this pastoring heart. See this care. Paul said imitate him. We need that love for each other. We need that love for outsiders. Okay? And then read for this model church. We want to be like this church. Read this book to see how they can be a model for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just pray that we have done justice to these first three chapters that our hearts here have been opened, that we all have been receptive, that your word is what is written on our hearts. Certainly not the words of us as preachers, but the words of your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, our word, your words that will equip us, that will drive us, empower us, encourage us to go forth and to be the church as the Thessalonian church was. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.